Hi, this is Damien from New City, Orlando. You're listening to our CBR Bible Project series, where each episode we introduce a different book of the Bible as it coincides with CBR. To learn more about community Bible reading or CBR, visit newcityorlando.com forward slash CBR. Hey, New City, this is Nate Claiborne. I'm here today with Josh Kessler, and we're going to be talking about the book of Ezra. It's good to be with you today, Josh. It's good to be here, Nate. It's it's always a privilege to do this, and I love that we get to do this together. So I, I would agree. I, I always enjoy talking about the Bible and theology, and so the fact mm. that people are actually going to listen to me do this on a podcast with you is an added bonus. It's a huge bonus, yeah. So Ezra, let's kind of dive in here. Um, mm-hmm. It's worth noting um, we're kind of some divergences between the English Bible and the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. We're assuming for the most part, our listeners are reading English Bibles. Right. <laughs> and so we, we just finished second Chronicles and it ends with the decree of Cyrus. And then you mm-hmm. flip the page over to Ezra starts with the decree of Cyrus. So right. it, it makes sense why they're back to back. Um, the other thing to note is that in the English Bible, they're organizing the books in the Old Testament by genre. So all the history books get lumped together, all the prophetic books lumped together, all the poetic books lumped together. Uh, but there's a little bit of a different organizational principle in the Hebrew Bible that we've, mm-hmm. we touch on in these podcasts from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we had been following the Hebrew ordering after Kings, a whole... You know, not, not in a whole new section, but after Kings, you jump straight to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of at the end of Kings, we've got Israel in exile. The prophets give their commentary on yeah, why what is this, what's wrong, what, yeah. how, how can it be fixed, promises mm-hmm. of uh, God restoring Israel. That's right. And then you kind of pick up some of these other historical books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, where we start to see glimmers of restoration. That's right. But we have a little more context for what's the larger story because we've read the prophets. So for us, we're not getting the prophets. We're just kind of coming straight out of the end of Chronicles into a new historical section uh, that'll... Kind of Ezra and Nehemiah were the other thing I guess we should note is Ezra and Nehemiah are a single book. That's right. Um, yeah. And in English, it's two separate books. And it makes sense that they're two separate books because Ezra is really focused on Ezra. Got different characters. Different characters. Mm-hmm. But they do, we'll touch on this. We, I think we'll get to it in our discussion a little bit about how it may help the story if you think of them together. But we're going to do our own separate podcast on Nehemiah. So, yeah. Um, Having said all that, what are kind of give us some background of what what's going on historically as we're getting into Ezra? Right. So, um, it in in the sense that we just mentioned, it's helpful that we just came out of Second Chronicles because we can really just take a look back, sort of at the end of Second Chronicles, and say it's it's a very clear transition. So we're picking right up really where we left off, which is the decree from Cyrus. So uh, he makes a decree. And tells all of uh, tells the exiles that they are allowed to return. In fact, uh, uh, gives them all the resources that they need to to go and rebuild, rebuild the temple of the Lord, um, take whatever you need to do that. Um, and so, whoever, and I'll get into authorship just in a second here. But before that, whoever it was that compiled these things. Um, we think it was probably somewhere around 400 BC, 380 BC. Mm-hmm. That's when everything sort of came together for the 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 one book of Ezra and Nehemiah in in Hebrew. But obviously, we just mentioned they're separate for us in English. So, um, 
this the situation is is um, it's very hopeful on the outset. Um, we're we're seeing that at the very beginning of the book that Ezra makes it clear this is a, a, a fulfillment of the prophecy from Jeremiah that God would restore a remnant of Israel, mm-hmm. and so here they are, and it's happening, and they're they're coming back to the land, and so that's kind of the brief context of where we're at. Yeah, and just start just to give people a bit of time scale because as we've been reading in CBR, we've just finished Chronicles. David's not that far back in the past. I mean, he's, he's not, you know, he's, as you might think. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a sense in which it feels like David's recent, but if we're talking about 400 BC, if I remember right, the monarchy with David, Saul, Solomon is really closer to 10,000 BC. So we're talking about a, a solid six centuries between the beginning of the monarchy and where we find ourselves in Ezra. And mm-hmm. have, because Chronicles covers most of Israel's history in right. some sense, it, it may obscure the fact that we're a little farther into the biblical timeline by the time yeah. we land in Ezra. Yeah, that's true. And it might, to that point, it might be worth noting um, the, the period of exile, some people, I don't, I don't know if everybody really knows this, but it's probably only about, what, 50, 60 years that they're actually in exile in Babylon? Yeah, the, the bulk like of them, that. are in, they get a 70-year exile. So they, 70, they, okay. Yeah, but it's there's a sense in which if you really look at the very last people to get exiled and then you look at the very first people to come back, it compresses mm-hmm. it yeah, a little bit that's more. That's true. That's true, because there is a there are about two or three what actually um, exoduses of, yeah. of exiles from Babylon, and so there it's not like everybody comes back at once; they kind of happen in in pieces. Mm-hmm. So, which is you know kind of draws us back to Ezra and Nehemiah. It mm-hmm. gives us two different. There's the group that comes with Ezra in a first wave, and then there's another wave. Nehemiah is involved, and so they they're back to back, but they're really the 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 historical timeline starting to get stretched a little bit on us. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then just to briefly tie in authorship for everyone, um, there's there's two prevailing theories, and one is that whoever compiled everything for Chronicles also uh, compiled everything for Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, uh, but more recent scholarly um, evidence uh, seems to point toward actually like a, a separate author mm. for Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, and the Jewish tradition holds that Ezra is essentially the one who compiled um, all the documents together, which would make sense because he's a he's a unique uh, figure in the sense that he's this first sort of priest scribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scribe pre-exile was a position just in the king's court. Like that was the only thing you did was you scribed everything. Yeah. Um, but Ezra has this unique. Uh, um, education within Babylon and and Aramaic. And so he's able to compile all of the decrees and letters and documents, correspondence that goes back and forth between kings and between governors and put it all together um, in a way that's theologically consistent with the story of the Bible. Um, So he's got a very unique perspective as this first sort of priest scribe. He's really, from that priestly side, able to highlight everything that we see in terms of obedience to the covenant, calling people back to teaching the law and all of that stuff. So um, he's, he's a very unique character mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, he's, he seems to be part of a new 
a new thing that God is doing in the way that he's revealing himself to his people, the way he's preserving mm. the history of Israel. As you were talking, it made me think of he, it, probably not an exact correlation, but the figure of Luke mm. in the New Testament, who's yeah. compiling this historical narrative, yeah. it's just a little bit different than collecting oral reports in some ways. I mean, Luke is obviously interviewing eyewitnesses and collating things together. Um, but it's a, it's a specific type of writer that seems different than what the prophets were. Mm-hmm. Um, and even maybe in, in line with what Moses was in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that too. Kind That's of really c- connecting good. in both directions. I like that. Um, so as we're, as we're looking at Ezra, mm-hmm. um, kind of got us, we're situated historically. Yeah. We can give people a brief outline too. Yeah. So, uh, chapters one through six, um, it's really focusing on Zerubbabel and uh, sort of the rebuilding of the temple itself. Really underused um, Bible name, just underused. Yeah, underused. Why, I, I why know, don't we name I know kid, some Ezra's, more kids? But you know, there should be some Z's floating around. I think. Could yeah. You know, everyone's trying to be unique. Everybody so. keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so one through six, uh, Zerubbabel is is really the main character there, focused on rebuilding the temple, and then. Uh, Ezra comes on the scene later, um, interestingly enough, in chapter 7, and he takes us through 7 through 10, uh, so the last three chapters of the book. So really two main characters neatly help split up sort of the structure of the book mm-hmm. um, and the different focuses. And uh, So 1 through 6, Temple, Zerubbabel, 7 through 10, Ezra, and uh, the law, kind of trying to reinstitute uh, cultic worship and, and adherence to the covenant. Yeah. When you mentioned this, will kind of maybe we'll springboard off this a little bit. You mentioned some of the things that are going on in the first six chapters. It's Mm -hmm. it's the remnant being restored, Mm -hmm. and so there's people coming back to the land. There's the the starting of the rebuilding of the city. Really hopeful stuff. Yeah. Such a great measure of hope, and I I think um, as we'll as we talk about get on talking about this a little bit more, we'll we'll see this. There's this tension between hope and and sort of unresolved and unfulfilled promise. And, and, uh, so th- there's this weird sort of tension that happens throughout the book and in, in mm-hmm. many different places, but starts off so hopeful, very hopeful with the decree. People are returning the altars rebuilt, um, in chapter three. And, uh, it's, it's this really exciting time after being exiled for, uh, so long. So. Yeah, it makes it so. I, we kind of take a, a, a literary turn here for a minute, and mm-hmm. I think it, um, as we're thinking about what's starting to happen in Ezra, it's kind of like what goes on in the hero's journey, mm-hmm. in the sense of like every every major story that we have in literature and movies today, kind of has this arc to it where the mm-hmm. main character, the protagonist, is leaves home and he goes through trials, tribulations, temptations, learns something valuable in the process and then comes back home with this new knowledge. And then the story usually ends shortly after that because it's like a kind of a happily ever after situation. Mm -hmm. And because of so many stories that we encounter being like that, we're kind of prepped for that in Ezra. Yeah. If we're just looking at it as if we think about the storyline in the Bible, think about what's going on in Ezra, as English readers, maybe we're not as tempted to do that because we're still smack in the middle of the Old Testament. So we're like, well, there's a lot more stuff to happen. But if we just think about the way stories normally resolve, there's these hints of 
oh, Israel has learned their lesson. They've fixed these problems. They're not going to be idolaters anymore. They're not going to do this anymore. Right. We're going to, we're brought back in the land. The exile is in an official sense older, but in a non-official mm-hmm. sense, there's kind of a question mark there. So yeah. what, what else do we see along those lines in here? Yeah, well, that's a great point because um, you, you totally get that uh, sort of this back and forth, um, even within what you were talking about with the hero's journey, because uh, the altar does get rebuilt, um, but there is this, this mixture of joy and weeping. So the, the older generation who had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, uh, they see the, the foundation laid for the new temple, and it just pales in comparison mm. to what they had seen before. And so they weep aloud. And yeah. there's this mixture of joy and happiness that, hey, we've, like, the second, the new temple's coming, like, we've laid the foundation, but the older generation is is just um, so disappointed in what they are seeing, and so they weep aloud, and so there's this mixture happening. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, there's this opposition, right? So uh, Zerubbabel encounters this opposition and and has to deal with that then the the work gets ceased um because of the uh um the opposition that takes place and so there is this sort of hero's journey happening and that he's Zerubbabel has to overcome all this opposition to keep things going and um but to the point that we mentioned earlier there is this you're seeing this clear uh tension between um, promises being fulfilled and, and hope being restored, mm-hmm. and then the disappointment or the the, the falling short of what um, felt promised in the prophets and and what felt promised to Abraham and and everything that the Israelites are holding on to. Um, there seems to be that tension even here in chapters three and four. And, so yeah, we're great. just. It, it seems like it could be the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that was helpful for me, and maybe the listeners will find this helpful too, in, in thinking about why Israel even ended up in exile. Mm-hmm. And since we're the way we're reading it, we don't have the benefit of the prophetic commentary. We'll get that in the spring next year, right? But it, it really boils down to Israel worshipped other gods when they weren't supposed to, so they That's had right. idolatry. Yeah, they went through the motions with their religious rituals. So they're, yep. they're, they're making the sacrifices they need to make, but they're kind of half-heartedly engaging in the festivals. They're not doing the year of Jubilee. They're just sort of doing the bare minimum. Right. And then they're not practicing um, what we would maybe call today social justice in terms of mm. caring for the widows, the, widows, the orphans, the poor. the poor. Yeah, And so they come back from exile. And as, as we see here, they're coming back to exile. This kind of maybe helps explain what's going on in Ezra is they're, they are no longer dealing with idolatry. So that's right. never an issue for Israel after mm-hmm. the exile. Uh, but we start to see the hints of religious ritualism in terms of, well, they're going to mm-hmm. rebuild the temple, they'll restore the altar, the sacrifices are back in place. Mm-hmm. But it's just more like, well, this is what we're supposed to do. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll get this up and going, but it, you know, it's not going to be like it used to, but we'll, we'll make it work. Yeah, you get that ha- <coughs> haphazard sort of attitude, heart hard attitude from the people, mm-hmm. certainly not from the main characters like Zerubbabel and Ezra who are deeply and and 
intimately moved and motivated by God's spirit and his law. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we see that more with ne- We'll talk about it when we do Nehemiah, but yeah. we see Nehemiah's like that as well, yeah. which makes us think, oh, it's, it's kind of still just like it was. Right. Because that's what we get with, you know, with Moses, with Joshua, David, it just like they were on the right track and we're just the people of, as a whole, the people as a whole, not. were just kind of scattered. And so yeah. any, any glimmer of hope that this is going to be the final solution to the problem of Israel following Yahweh wholeheartedly is yeah. kind of thrown out. And then by the end of yeah. the book, we see. Uh, we've got some of that ignoring social justice kind of creeping back in as well with yep. some of the failed reforms towards the end of the book. And so it just sort of leaves, in some sense, Ezra resolves one problem. They're not in exile anymore, but it doesn't yeah. fully resolve it. Right. And it really is, as readers of Christian scripture, we see it pointing towards the need for a Messiah, the need for some supernatural, radical yes. change. It doesn't matter if they get back in the land and rebuild the temple. There's something still off yeah. that they can't overcome on their own. There's still a problem. Yeah. We'll tie that in at the end, too, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, any other... Can you think of anything offhand? Any other thematic elements that kind of pull together? Yeah. I think... Um, I think it is it is so worth mentioning that uh, the providence of God um, and our, our trust in God, I think Ezra is teaching us that we can, in fact, do that. We can put our trust in God um, wholeheartedly mm-hmm. and to, to fulfill his promises. Um, and I think I'd love to read a section in chapter 6 that, uh, uh, this is starting in verse six and going through twelve. It's a it's a bit of a chunk, so uh, bear with me. But I think it it shows all of those themes that I just mentioned: okay. God's providence, our ability to trust Him, that He is working through everything and everyone uh, to accomplish His purposes. Nothing falls outside of His His control. Mm. That God is in control and, and He moves the hearts of even pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. So um, starting in verse six, now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar Buzanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Wow. <laughs> the, the fact that he goes as far as to say, 
anybody who tries to even alter this, like let them be impaled, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is it, it's remarkable. Um, yeah, it's it, with, with when you're reading it to us as listeners here, it, it, yeah. it, it kind of obscures a little bit of the context and that you don't see the right. heading at the top. It says it's Darius decree. Yeah. So you're like, you're so reading you don't this get that till the end. And you're who like, Oh man, whoever this is means business. And then yeah. you get that last, like I Darius. And so we're talking about Darius, King of the Medes and Persians, right. Darius, who's saying this on behalf of Israel about a God he doesn't particularly believe in. Yeah. Um, and is, it's just remarkable that he would defend Israel in that way. And you really can't explain that outside of God's sovereign providential working, working. Yeah. And it it really does set us up. I'm glad we read through this passage. It really sets us up for how to understand maybe even Ezra, Nehemiah and Esther as a chunk. Mm -hmm. Um, When we get to Esther, we're going to note in there that it's, I think it's the only book in the Bible that does not mention God at all. Mm. And yet, when you look at what unfolds in the book, you can't help but see God at work in it. Mm-hmm. And so kind of Ezra's moving yeah. us in that direction of there's overt mentions of God, but then there's things like this where it's you're reading it with the eyes of faith and kind of realizing like, oh, this this decree from this pagan king, that not that that just doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't. It doesn't. Um it it might be like a you know, a particularly um, you know, if we were just to use a hypothetical, some random governing official that we know is vehemently opposed to Christianity, maybe all of a sudden saying, uh, "Go rebuild the church that was that was burned down" or something like that, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it would it would be that dramatic in our in our minds. We're like, "How did this even happen?" Yeah, you and know? anyone who interferes is going to be executed on absolutely. The spot. Like just, yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's amazing. That's just, that's remarkable. So, um, yeah, I'm glad we stopped and, and honed in there. So what do you have for us, Nate? Well, and that, yeah, so it kind of builds off this. So you, you, you were reading in the middle of chapter six, and then as we get into seven, like you mentioned earlier, that's when Ezra actually arrives on the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, we read about him in chapter seven, verse six, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given, Um, And then I remember, so I took um, in my second year of Bible school, one of the week-long classes that they, um, just the way the program was structured, listeners are not necessarily interested in the the administrative structuring of a school (laughs) I went to 17 years ago. But um, I still remember this moment from this class on Ezra. One, because I was kind of thrown off at that point in time, like, why would we have a of all the books in the Bible we could do a deep dive on for a week, mm-hmm. why are we picking Ezra? Um, and I just remember the the guy that taught it to us, his life verse um, was Ezra 7.10, mm-hmm. which says, Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was for me at a point in time when I had decided... Uh, and I didn't necessarily, I decided I'd felt the call of God to pursue some type of vocational ministry and something in the realm of teaching, but not knowing what it was. Mm-hmm. Although I was fairly certain I was not going to be a senior pastor. Mm. Um, and so this, this verse kind of always stuck with me of, it's kind of a, a remarkable thing to say about a person in scripture, but it's also mm. a model that we can apply today. Mm. Um, 
and it has three components to it that kind of give us a, a, a almost a blueprint for discipleship in some ways. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily couched in that vein mm-hmm. here, but Ezra is determining to study the law, mm-hmm. but then he's also going to do what it says, mm. and then he's going to teach it to other people. Mm. And I think we, I mentioned this when we were talking off the pod, that we kind of envision it because we see what Ezra does in the rest of the book, that it, that means he's going to teach all of Israel. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't necessarily imply that. It just means that he's going to be doing this in Israel, meaning wherever he goes, whatever he's doing, yeah. his disposition is he's determined to study and um, pay attention to obey, meditate on the law of the Lord. And then he's yeah. passing on what he's learning both by study and by doing to other people. And mm. it gives us kind of a, an encouragement of that. If we really wanted to reduce discipleship down to a cycle in some ways, that's yeah. all it is, is it's, it's yeah. me committing to study God's word, meditating on it, obeying it, yeah. and then finding someone else a step or two behind me yeah. that I can draw into that habit. Yes. And what I, I love, what I love about what you're saying is to, there's no graduation, right? Mm-hmm. There's no end point here. So it's something that he devotes his heart to for the rest of his life. Like this isn't, uh, we, we don't sort of, I think in, when we talk, talk about discipleship and think about it, we think we reach this point, right, where we've be, become a quote-unquote disciple, mm-hmm. and uh, that's nowhere in here, and really there's, there's nothing in Scripture that, that says that either. So it's this continual cycle of studying, replicating, and passing on, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you've learned and what you've, yeah. um, what's changed you, so. Yeah, and it... it in some sense, maybe Ezra prepares us for some of the costs and downsides of the discipleship process in Absolutely. that he experiences mixed results. Yeah, in mixed that, results, opposition. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it kind of tempers our expectations to be realistic. Not everyone's going to love what you have to say or not everyone's going to follow things, but that doesn't change that you can still determine in your heart to study, mm. obey, pass on. That's good. That's good. So, um, what is anything else we want to touch on? I feel like we've given listeners a really good yeah, big picture. Here's what Ezra's doing. Here's how it fits into things. Here's some passages that kind of read through the eyes of faith and thought about meditatively give us yeah. words to live by. Yeah. I think the, the last thing I would say is, is that despite all the tension that, um, that happens in the book, the overall... Uh, arch, and we'll we'll get into this in Nehemiah too when we do that. But the the point really is to reinvigorate and instill this sense of hope in the fact that God will fulfill His promise to Abraham. He will fulfill His promise to David, um, and we could see that even in the providence of of sending the exiles back to rebuild the temple, um, and even though they encounter opposition. Uh, those things do take place, and so God is true to His word, and there's the there's so there's this great measure of hope as well. Yeah, getting into the book. Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's an excellent note to end on. Hmm. Um, it's good talking with you, Josh. I'm glad yeah. we were able to carve out the time to dig into Ezra, and I hope the listeners will enjoy the. I think we'll be in Ezra for the next two weeks, just kind of hmm. seeing what we can see that God would have us understand. Yeah.
Yeah, ditto. This has been really, really enjoyable. So yeah. thanks, Nate. Yeah.